I remember uh, an interview that I saw years ago. I was thinking about it this week as we've been talking about these this series that we've been in. We're in week three of a four-week series of just some big pictures of what God is like. We call it the four Gs, these headings that we give over what God is like. And it's to help us be reminded of what is true about God and what is true about us in light of that. And this week, we're going to talk about this idea of God being good, that God is good so we don't have to look elsewhere. And as I was thinking about this idea in this sermon, I was reminded of an interview I saw uh, several years ago with uh, the actor Brad Pitt. Uh, if you know who Brad Pitt is, he's a very famous actor. He's one of the, you know, makes more money than anybody in Hollywood kind of thing, been in tons of movies. And in this article, what drew my attention was he was talking about growing up in a Christian home, growing up uh, under uh, parents that, that loved the Lord and were teaching him the Bible and pointing to these things. And he was talking about how he had walked away from his faith and why, what had led to that and what had caused that. And so he said this in the interview. He said, I didn't understand the idea of a God who says you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. It seemed to me to be about ego and I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. And so he was just sharing where he was and the way he saw it. But what he was saying is this idea that God would demand his praise would call for us to make much of him, to, to honor him above all else, seemed like a, a very egocentrical kind of thing. And he was like, I just didn't want to have anything to do with that. It didn't make any sense to me. And, and I was drawn to that and I was remembering that quote and him saying that because I think that sums up the struggle of some people. And maybe you've wrestled with that in your life. Why is it that God is so about his own praise? You know, that's throughout the Bible and God's calling us to that. He's telling us uh, to praise him and to make uh, much of him. In fact, when you read the Ten Commandments, right, the first of the Ten Commandments is, is that God is to be the center of everything. No other gods before me and no idols and don't worship anything else. And you see those things and it can lead to those questions. Why is that the case? Why does God say that? And it goes to the heart of our theology, what we believe about who God is. And what he's like. And so we've been talking about that the last few weeks. What we're doing with this series of four G's is we put these headings on what God is like. And it's really to help simplify great big ideas of theology that we can kind of remember and handle them and see where we're maybe not believing what is true about God. And so what we've been doing is, is, is we've done each week, as we say, the first of the four G's was God is great. And what we mean by God is great is that he is sovereignly in control of all things. And so when we see that, we recognize that we don't have to be in control because God is in control. And oftentimes we struggle when we try to take back control and we're trying to control things in our life. And so it's good to be reminded that God is in control. We don't have to be. Last week, we talked about that God is glorious, that we don't have to fear others. And the way we define that or the way I defined that last week, when we said we don't have to fear others is getting our identity, our purpose from what people think of us. Caring more what people think than what God thinks and the problems that brings. But when we see God as glorious, we see that his opinion matters way more than anything else. But today we're going to talk about God is good so we don't have to look elsewhere. And I think when we understand the way we're talking about this and what we're going to look at as we look at John 4 together is it goes right to the heart of Brad Pitt's objection. Why does God have to be all about himself? Why does he demand our praise? Why does he call us to say that he's better than anything else? And the answer is, it's because God is good. He is actually better than anything else. 
And I don't say that jokingly or flippantly, but the idea is this, that if God is good, then he has to call us to the thing that is best for us. And he is the thing that is best for us. And so what Brad Pitt didn't see, I don't think, and I've heard people make this objection before. He says, it seemed all about ego. And I didn't think God would be egocentric like that. I didn't like that. The problem is, is that we're looking at God as a person and God is not a person. He is not like us. If a person were to come in and start to say, you need to be all about me. You need to be all about my praise and I need to be the center of attention always and make it about me. We'd all go, Ugh, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. But when God says it as the thing that holds all things together, that is better than anything else, it's not ego. It's actually love that that's what we need. We need him to be the center of our entire life and being more than we need anything else in our life. And the truth is we forget that. We forget that quite a bit. And we take other good things in our life and we plug them in and we seek to make our life revolve around other good things. And that will never be able to do what we hope it will do. So God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. And so I want us to think about that idea this morning by looking at John chapter four today. Uh, the beginning of John chapter four, what we often refer to as the woman at the well, as, as Luke just read for us. Jesus has this conversation with this woman. And a lot of what's going on here is I would summarize it in that she's not believing that God is good. She's looking for it in other ways in her life. And so I want us to consider that today. That even if we affirm and we go, yes, God is good and he should be the center. The truth is every one of us at different times in our life practically doesn't do that. And so I want us to think first, how do we practically miss this? That God alone is good and he is to be the center of all things. And then secondly, what does Jesus say here that helps us to get it, to see it more clearly? And then lastly, what practical difference does it make when we actually see that God is good and he alone can satisfy our needs? So let's think about John chapter four together. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to read a few verses as we go through it. But in this story, we see Jesus leave and go uh, down to the next place he's traveling, but he has to travel through Samaria. And just a little background on that. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They hated each other so much that oftentimes they wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They would go around it so they didn't have to deal with it. And so it's kind of unique that even that Jesus says to his disciples, let's go and we're going through Samaria. But then as he goes through Samaria, he stops and he begins to talk to this woman and they have this interaction. And so in verse six, it says Jesus was wearied from his journey. He was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. So it's right in the middle of the day, the hottest time of the day, exhausted from traveling. He sits down at the well and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so John, who writes this gospel, is kind of cluing you into what's going on. Normally, Jews and Samaritans didn't talk. And then culturally, normally men, single men don't talk to a woman at a well like this. Culturally, if a woman was coming to the well and Jesus is sitting there, he would normally get up and walk 20 yards off so that she could come get water and not be bothered. And so what Jesus does here is, is kind of scandalous on two fronts. 
One, the fact that he stays and he talks to this woman. But then secondly, it's a Samaritan woman and he's a Jewish man. And so that's why she responds. Why are you talking to me? Why are you asking me to draw water for you? Why is that the case? And so Jesus starts to interact with her, even though he's breaking all these societal norms. And he begins to talk to her and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. And so Jesus starts into this conversation with her and he's saying some things that obviously if we really start to look at the context and the way he's talking, he's not just talking about water. Right? Because he says, I could give you this water that will well up inside of you. You will never be thirsty. It will be living water that's doing this work in you and it's going to lead to eternal life. And so what Jesus is saying here, we're kind of clued in by the language he uses. He says, if you drink of this water, it won't do it. But if you get the water I could give you, it will. And he even alludes to this idea of living water. It's something we see in the Old Testament. God says this at different times. You have forsaken the fount of living water, talking about himself and the way that we respond to him. Jesus is hitting on that. He's, he's kind of alerting her to some of those things, but she's not seeing it. She's like, that sounds great. I would love to not have to come in the heat of the day and draw water. Would you give that to me? So she's kind of missing what he's saying, but he's trying to engage her in a much deeper conversation. And when I think about this passage, I love this passage in John chapter four, that here's Jesus going against all the societal norms, a Jew talking to a Samaritan, a man talking to a woman in this way that he's there waiting on her. And he's going to have this conversation with her to go far deeper than just talking about water. And he starts to engage her in this. And she's not completely seeing the spiritual element of what he says. And so he continues to push a little deeper. Right. She says, well, give me that water. And so he asked her this kind of question out of the blue. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I want you to think about what that situation would be like. She's just kind of minding her business, trying to get her water. And he says, go call your husband. She goes, ah, I don't have one. And he goes, that's right. You've been married five times and you're working on number six. And she's like, whoa, what just happened here? Right. I perceive that you're a prophet. She's like, how did you know that? And I want just to think about this picture that you see through John's gospel. And I know we're just jumping in at uh, chapter four. But if you read in all of John's gospel in chapter two, John tells us that Jesus knew the heart of every man, that he knew every person that he was talking to. He knew their deepest need and what they were dealing with. And so every single thing Jesus saying here is very pointed and purposeful for good reason. When he starts to ask her, 
about if you knew who you were talking to, I would give you living water. He's not talking about physical water to have a drink. He's talking about a deep spiritual need within her, and she's missing that. And so what does he do as he starts to have that conversation with her? He goes deeper and he starts to uh, reveal what she's doing in her life. And what Jesus is doing here is he's starting to talk to her about the spiritual thirst that she has in her life. He's saying to her in so many words, as I see that you're dying of thirst here, that you're looking for things to fill up your life in all these ways and it's not working. And if you knew who you were talking to, I would give you something so far greater than what you're seeking or what you've been seeking. And so when he says, go call your husband, he's revealing her heart and what she's been after. And what we see here with the woman at the well is that she's been seeking uh, validation in her life. She's been thinking, seeking that which is good in romantic relationships. She's on number six. She's been married five times. Jesus knows this about her and he begins to speak in this way to draw that out because what he's trying to get her to see. And I want you to think about this for just a second because we can read the woman at the well and we can see her and we go, yeah, yeah, she's dealing with that. And I can see that there. Uh, She is truthful in her answer. It says Jesus says you did tell the truth, although it's not the complete truth. It's kind of evasive. And if we're honest, we're kind of like the woman at the well, are we not? Somebody asks us how things are going or what it looks like, and we kind of shade it in a certain way, maybe not untruthful, but maybe not telling the whole of it. And oftentimes we're just like this woman is. We take things in our life and we seek to make them the thing that will bring us happiness. We put all our hope in in one basket or another. And we start to seek it in our life and we start to go after it. But the problem is, it's just like this woman here where in us, it's a thirst that comes that can't be quenched by the things of this world. Uh, In Jeremiah 2, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah to go to the people of Israel. And he says, you've made a you've you've had this wrong. You've gone after other gods, idols, and you begin to worship them and they can't do what you hope they would do. And then he says this, he says, it's like you're, you, you have forsaken the fount of living waters and you've gone after these other things. And it's like trying to drink from a cistern with a hole in the bottom. You know what a cistern is? It's a big stone thing that held water. And he says, you've forsaken me, the fount of living waters, and you've gone after this other thing that has a hole in the bottom and it's pouring out the bottom. And that's exactly what he's getting at with this lady here. But I would say we do the same thing all the time. We're just like the woman at the well. We put our hope in other things. Maybe it's like the woman at the well in the sense of we put our hope in romantic relationship in finding a soulmate, finding someone like our society would say that will that will complete me and make everything wonderful. We've been kind of sold that from a very young age, movies, uh, commercials, all of it. We get inundated with that. If you just find the right person, I mean, we see it in almost every movie, right? You find the right person, there'll be a bright shining light and the music will swell and you'll run together and then they'll go off and everything will be wonderful. But the problem is when we start to function and operate that way, we're putting this weight on that person or this relationship for them to be our savior and they will not be able to do it. You were created for eternity. 
eternity in your heart to have this relationship with God. And when we try to fill that with anything else, it will come up short. But yet we do it. And maybe it's not a romantic relationship. Maybe it's in another way. Maybe it's uh, your job. Maybe you throw yourself into your work because that's the way you're going to be validated. I'm going to get this promotion and I'm going to get this recognition and people are going to see me as whatever this thing is. And so I go really hard after this job and that's the thing that's going to bring me satisfaction. And then you get laid off. Or you get older and you retire. And even if you're really great at it and everybody forgets about what you did in that job. And all of a sudden it starts to fade away. Or maybe we do it uh, in stuff. Maybe it's not even about the job. Maybe the job is there so I can earn lots of money to buy things that will make me happy. And so we throw ourselves into getting and acquiring things. And we get on that kind of hamster wheel of like, I need this and then everything will be good. You know what we really need? We just need a new whatever. And then we go get it. And then guess what happens? A month later. You know what we really need is we need a new whatever. And we do it again and again and again and again. And it's like drinking from a cistern with a great big hole in the bottom. And it can never bring satisfaction in the way you were created to experience that. Because we're trying to fill the eternal void with temporary things. And so we get on that hamster wheel of doing that over and over. Maybe you do it by seeking it like your appearance. Get really serious about what you eat and working out and I'm going to be in great shape and that's my identity. And then guess what happens? You get older and time and gravity always win. For all of us, it doesn't matter. It's going to happen. And so any of those things we put our hope in, we can't do it. And that's exactly what this woman was experiencing. Five marriages working on number six. That's why Jesus says to her, if you knew who was talking to you, you would come to me and I would give you living water that's going to spring up into your soul and meet every need that you've ever desired. And she's not seeing it, right? She's not there at first. And so he asks her about the, the husband. Go call your husband. She quickly defers. What does she say as he says that? She does what a lot of us do, if, if we're honest, right? He says, go call your husband. You've had five. You're working on six. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then suddenly she becomes a theologian right there. Right. Right. at the Well, suddenly she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say that it's in Jerusalem. The people should worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. And by the way, do you know what she's talking about there when she says that Samaritans and Jews were fighting and they didn't get along. And at the heart of that. Samaritans were people who were Jewish in their heritage. They were Israelites that had intermarried with the people, right? When the, when the uh, Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and they scattered the Jews everywhere, they intermarried and they syncretized with pagan religions and they took part of Judaism and they took part of pagan religions and they meshed them together. And they started worshiping on Mount Gerizim, a different mountain, and the Jews were in Jerusalem. And so what she's saying is we've been fighting for hundreds of years over this. What's the truth? Right. So she becomes a theologian, but she asks a question that's kind of arm's length away from her. Right. Jesus just said, you've had five husbands and you're working on six. And she's like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah, you're a prophet. So let's talk about theology. 
Let's talk about theology that doesn't deal directly with my heart right here, but something else we can talk about. And so she asked this question and Jesus says to her in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And for the first time in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am he. He literally says, I am He takes the covenant name of God and he applies it to himself. And the first person that he reveals this to is a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman that's been married five times and is working on number six. And that is who Jesus waits for. That's who Jesus goes to the specific place at the specific time that knows everything about this woman and waits for her and says, I'm offering you something that you've been looking for everywhere in your life and you haven't been able to find. I am he. And what he's saying to her is that everything that you've been seeking in relationships, everything that you've been seeking to fill yourself up in your life through men and relationships and marriages and all these things, you've been looking for me. He says the time is coming and it is now here that it won't matter about Mount Gerizim or the one in Jerusalem. You will worship in spirit and truth. Why is that the case? What is he talking about when he says the time is now here that this is the case? Jesus is saying, because I am here, it's no longer those things, but you come through me. Jesus will say that over and over. No one comes to the father, but through me. And what he's offering here is a relationship that meets the deepest need of your soul. To have a relationship with the living God of the universe, the only thing that can fill the eternal need and want that you have in your life. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician that lived in the late 1800s. And he very famously said that every single person has a God-shaped hole in their heart. This woman had been trying to fill up the God-shaped hole in her heart with relationships with men. And Jesus, having great compassion on her, met her at the well and said, what you need to see is that God alone is good and he will satisfy all your needs. Everything that you're looking for in these other ways is found in me. The time is now coming and is here because I am here. And he's calling her to a relationship with him. And I love that when we try to make it about uh, theology, keeping it at arm's distance, which we often do. When it gets a little too personal, we go, well, what about where we're supposed to worship? Right. Or we do that kind of thing all the time. It gets a little too close to my own heart. So we go, well, well, what do we have to wear when we come to worship? Right. We talk about things that I can push out here and keep away from my deepest need in my life. And that's what she's doing. And Jesus won't let her have that. He shows her that he is here, that what she's looking for is the relationship. What she's looking for in all these men is him and him alone. When I read that quote from Brad Pitt. And he says, I don't get it. Why would God be all about acknowledging him? Seems like ego to me. 
God is all about acknowledging him because he knows that he is the only thing that can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Him and him alone. God alone is good. God alone is the only one that will satisfy every need that you've ever had. We do that all the time in different ways, and we need to remind one another, which is why we talk about the four G's in our church. It's why we come back to this, that God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere because as we live in community together and as we spend time together, we're going to notice from time to time that we're chasing after other things. Your heart gets alerted to it at different times when you're really crushed over something that's temporal. Doesn't mean that it's not right to mourn or to struggle or the things that happen in your life. But when it becomes the thing in your life, it begins to crush you. Right. So when you don't get the promotion you were hoping for and you're just completely rejected, we need to be reminded that God is good and he alone can satisfy Or when uh, your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you and now all of a sudden I'm completely crushed because this was the one that was going to meet every need that I ever had. No, God alone is good and he is all that you need. And we need to be reminding one another of that truth. And the truth is when we start to do that and we step into that and we talk about the four G's and how we use these and what it looks like, it's done in community. Because oftentimes... The things that we're holding on really tightly to are blind spots to ourselves. We don't always see them. And so we need other people walking with us to speak the truth to us, to remind us of how good God is, that he is the one that meets our needs. And so as we end here, I just want to give you a couple things that when we start to function this way, we start to see that God alone is good, that he meets our needs, how that radically changes the way we operate. And one of those things or or right at the top of that is when we begin to pursue him and him first, we are now making the one thing that will bring a deep and abiding joy the center of our life. We're seeking after the thing that can actually stand up to what we're hoping it will do. And there's a great joy that abides through all circumstances when he is the center of all things. When we see he alone is good and we don't have to look elsewhere. But not only that, as we begin to do that and we see the safety that we have in the love of Christ and what he's done for us, it begins to uh, free us to go and, and love others, but also be honest about where we are and how desperately we need Jesus. I love the end of this passage in John four with this woman at the well. She goes running off into the town. The disciples come back and she takes off. It's in verse 28. It says, so the woman left her water jar and went into the town. Right. So she leaves her stuff and she takes off and she goes into the town and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And it's kind of a perplexing thing to say if you think about it. He just revealed all the secrets of my life, all the things that have not gone gone well. But yet she's so overwhelmed that this could be the Christ. Why? Because when our sin gets revealed, Jesus meets us in the middle of it and he says, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Come to me, you who are thirsty and drink from the fount of living waters. Because in our sin and our brokenness and when it gets revealed, he meets us in the middle and he says, I will take that 
And I will do what you can never do for you. And I will give you the grace and the glory of what I've done. And I will restore you to the relationship you were made for. And so here is this woman who gets completely revealed in all her mess. And she runs off in great excitement. He's told me everything I ever did. And that is good news because of who God is, because he's incredibly gracious, which we'll talk about next week. And so right in the middle of that, there is a freedom that comes from seeing that God alone can satisfy all your deepest needs. And when that happens, and we'll end here this morning, when that happens, it frees you to truly love others. And I want you to think about why that's the case. When you see God alone can satisfy your deepest needs. He is the center of all things. He is what you are longing for. You no longer place that expectation on other people and you are now free to love them for who they are, not what they can give you. Instead of crushing them under the weight that they're going to be the savior that completes you, that makes everything perfect and right. You see that God is the only one that can do that. And you now get to love them in the midst of that rather than using them for something they could never give you. It frees you. That's why God says you love God and then you love others out of that. Because God alone is good and he satisfies our deepest needs. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news. We thank you for the truth of what you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you that you alone satisfy our needs, that nothing else can do what you've done for us. And so I pray uh, today for each person here. Uh, You know every heart, you know every single one, just as you waited for that woman at the well, knowing everything about her, you know everything about every person that is present here today. You know the things they're dealing with and the things that they're struggling with, the things that they're putting their hope in. I pray that you would greatly remind each one of us today that you alone satisfy our needs. And thankfully, wonderfully, you've done all of it in Jesus for us. And so help us to rest And that glorious truth that you alone are good and that you satisfy everything we've ever needed. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.